Hello everyone, welcome back to the Salem Witch Trials. Well, it's for members only, actually. <laughs> and people on the podcast that can also listen over there. So before we carry on with the affliction, um, there is, there's like a rumour regarding how things started. And the one that's most out there, that they would state is out there, is that the girls were being shown um, how to do some divining, you know, by cracking an egg into a glass and watching the um, what face appears into a glass of water or a glass of wine, whatever, and they'd be able to see their future spouse or whatever in the formation inside the glass. And apparently, um, Mercy saw something like the devil's face or something hideous anyway, which started the witch craze off. However, that's completely false. That never happened. Um, there is actually no evidence whatsoever to support that the Paris girls were involved in any type of fortune telling and that that guilt from that practice might have manifested itself into their bewitchment it's just untrue there's also Arthur Miller's Crucible and it's a powerful one that because it's but it's also very misleading because again it shows the image of Tichiba directing the neighborhood girls into this adventure of fortune telling and it's just not true it's completely false there's zero zero evidence that that ever happened and it is really just very misleading certainly fortune telling it was all the rage at that time despite the concerns it it raised in ministers and other leaders of society it was pretty well known there was a lot of people doing it increase mother wrote just a couple of years after salem ungodly fortune tellers revealed things that could only be known by the help of evil angels, that is, agents of the devil, so he said. And while Diodat Lawson complained of the use of fortune-telling when he preached in Salem Village amid the witch trials, such practices had little, if anything, to do with the witchcraft crisis in 1692. Absolutely no contemporary record links Tichaba to such activity. And there is only one bleak mention of fortune-telling among the afflicted girls. John Hale, in his modest inquiry into the nature of witchcraft, described one girl as trying to learn a bit about her future husband. This is where how we get into it. I knew one of the afflicted persons who, as I was credibly informed, did try with an egg and a glass to find her husband's calling till there came up a coffin, that is, a spectre in the likeness of a coffin, and she was afterwards followed with the diabolical molestation to a death, and so died a single person. Egg white suspended in a glass of water formed shapes that foretold future events. In this case, this device, called a Venus glass, made an uncannily accurate prediction, for the coffin shaped... Well, it said the girl's death before she could marry, right? That's what happened. I mean, to look at it, that's what it would be seen as. Whether she actually saw that, we we don't know. Only she knows that. 
But that's the event that they are talking about. It was not an event that was led by anybody else. It was not an event where all the girls took place. It was literally just that one person that did it. And the girl's not actually named, by the way, so... Circumstances do suggest, though, that it's either Susanna Sheldon or Mary Warren, both of whom disappear from the records and had quite possibly died by 1697. When Hale completed his manuscript, so it was only them two that it could have been because they were the ones that seemed to have died single, but who it was, we don't actually know. Susanna Sheldon particularly fits the bill, as a girl with a diabolical molestation, for by 1694 she had moved to Rhode Island, where she was ordered to appear before the court as a person of evil fame. Almost as persistent as myth as fortune telling her a range of possible medical explanations. By far, the most popular is that the afflicted girls were suffering from convulsive ergotism. A diagnosis of that was first suggested in uh, 1976. Ergot, as we talked about before in the English witch trials, is a fungus that grows on damp cereal grains, particularly to rye. New Englanders use that to make their bread. Ingesting it can produce not only strange tics and behaviour, but LSD-like trips, which could explain the afflicted in Salem seeing spectres. While this sounds like a neat solution to the problem, the scholars soon after quickly demonstrated that the descriptions of the afflicted girls did not match the symptoms that would come with the poisoning. Um, surviving accounts mention no vomiting or diarrhoea, not to mention the gangrene or neurological damage that ergot poison inflicts upon the limbs, nor do the symptoms of ergotism come and go as apparently did the afflictions in 1692. Uh, furthermore, prolonged exposure to ergot for the months of affliction witnessed at Salem would have led to permanent dementia, and in extreme cases, much more deaths rather than being tried for witchcraft that had already died. Most of the girls led fairly normal and obscure lives after their involvement in the trials, with no sign of mental or physical illness. Indeed, most of them lived to an elfy old age, and even... Bigger problem for the ergot theory in every member of the family would have eaten infected bread and thus shown symptoms, but they did not. Moreover, the theory rests on there being one communal supply of rye that was infected, yet those complaining of witchcraft came not only from across Salem village, but from neighbouring towns as well. It is simply possible that all of them could have gotten their rye from a common source, Intriguing as it is, the ergot theory does not hold up under close inspection. Several other diseases have been put forward as possible culprits, ranging from encephalitis, Lyme disease, which is known as the Arctic hysteria, yet none of them seem to fit either. Many experts question the very existence of Arctic hysteria, which results in such behaviour as the people stripping off their clothes and running naked across the wild tundra. The accounts mention no such streaking in Salem, and while the supposed symptoms of witchcraft began in January, more people showed symptoms in spring and summer. And even if Arctic hysteria is a medical condition, only Inuit societies of the Arctic seem to have suffered from it. Encephalitis, the result of an infection transmitted by mosquito bite, 
does not really seem plausible, given that the first symptoms of bewitchment appeared during winter. And while the bull's eye rash often produced on the skin by Lyme disease might explain the devil's mark on the witch's teeth, it falls short of accounting for the behaviour of the afflicted. None of the suggested diseases fit, because a close reading of the testimony suggests that the symptoms were intermittent. They afflict, the afflicted had stretches when they acted perfectly normal, interspared with acute fits. Those who would search for modern medical explanation tried to view a 17th century phenomenon through 21st century glasses. There was a perfectly good 17th century medical condition that explained the behaviour of sufferers. They were bewitched. In 1692, everyone believed in the existence of witches in league with the devil, who had been created by God as a challenged man. During the Salem witch trials, there was no dispute of the existence of witches. All ministers and learned people knew that witches were real and that they had the power to harm. The debate was over how one could detect witch or witchcraft and whether the victims were truly victims or were just faking their ailments. Historians Bernard Rosenthal and Peter Hoffer have done the most thorough job of laying out the cases of deliberate fraud in Salem. They believe it was widespread, and they cite a number of examples to support their claim. For example, on March 24, 1692, Diodat Lawson, observing in a sermon he preached in Salem Village, that some of the afflicted, as they were striving in their fits in open court, have, by invisible means, had their wrists bound fast with a real cord, so as it could hardly be taken off without cutting. Some afflicted have been found with their arms tied and hanged upon a hook, from whence others have been forced to take them down, that they might not expire in that posture. How could the afflicted have their wrists bound so tight with a rope that it had to be cut off, or have their arms tied and placed on a hook, unless there was a conspiracy of fraud amongst the accusers? Many of the sufferers alleged they were pinched, or had pins allegedly stuck in them by spectres, in the 17th century, pinching was a common punishment for a youth who misbehaved. So this sort of spectral attack might indeed be related to hysteria, triggered by guilt of a wrongdoing. However, the misbehaviour would include acting out as well as fraudulent accusations and actions, including sticking pins in oneself and blaming someone's spectre for it. In the 17th century as today, they were troubled youths who harmed themselves. It is possible because of their mental state, they might not always be willing to admit they did this. The practice of sticking pins in flesh was common among youths, making fraudulent claims about demonic possession or spectral affliction. Pins were common household items and could not be individually traced. Their role in sewing and other domestic activities was a reminder of the survival place in society of those making the accusations. And furthermore, while being stuck with a pin was painful, certainly it was bearable, particularly if it could be stuck through dead skin or calluses. Indeed, adolescents today regularly undergo body piercings. That would appear far more painful than a small, straight pin. Then as now, a pin or a piercing brings dramatic attention, and as one might say, helps to make a point. 
in one of the most famous cases of witchcraft fraud in English history. Anne Gunter went beyond sticking pins in herself and dramatically vomited up pins, expelling them through her nose when sneezing. <sighs> Rung out of her breast, apparently, and even voided some pins downward as well by her water. They seemed to basically miraculously come out of every opening, making her a human pin pillow. In 1605, Anne's case was heard before King James I, himself a noted witch hunter, who got her to admit to her fraud. Gunter's case was so famous that it was not only noted by historians, but also preserved by playwrights. A scene in Ben Jonson's Volpuni, 1606, in which a demoniac fraudulently vomits pins is considered by many to be borrowed from the Gunter case. Much better known, Shakespeare's Macbeth, was per first performed the year after the Gunter case, so its witches may owe their inspiration, in part, to Anne as well. The afflicted girls of Salem had a wide body of knowledge of the cases of witchcraft that went beyond Anne Gunter in England. Many accounts of recent cases were circulating in print by 1692. The importance placed by Puritans on individuals reading the Bible for themselves meant that at the time of the Salem trials, literacy rates were rapidly climbing. Although female literacy rates trailed men's, a minister's daughter and niece would have been able to read. Marginalised members of society, such as a young servant girl, might not be able to study these accounts. But even if they could not read, knowledge of witchcraft, particularly published cases, seemed to have spread rapidly, rapidly in the vigorous oral culture of the 17th century. Indeed, the symptoms of the afflicted in Salem seem to suggest direct knowledge of several recent outbreaks, including the low-stuffed case in England, the recent affliction of the Goodwin children of Boston, accounts being published of both of these cases. Deodat Lawson observed a grievous fit by Abigail Williams, who ran dangerously about the house, going near the fire, gathering firebrands and throwing the them, what? sometimes making as if she would fly, stretching her arms as high as she could and crying, wish, 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 okay, several times, apparently. Hmm. Lawson was told that on other occasions, Abigail would appear to try and run up the chimney and had attempted to go into the fire. Martha Goodwin would have to be restrained as well to keep her out of the fire. In the Lostoff case, a bewitched girl ran round about the house, holding her apron, crying, Hush! Hush! Like Abigail, she showed a strange fascination with fire. Abigail was known to vomit pins, but she was stuck by them on multiple occasions. The Lostoft outbreak occurred in 1662, but the account that included the details was not published until 1682, and then it rapidly became widely available. In 1688, Cotton Mather observed the Goodwin children in Boston, and the next year he published Memorable Providences Related to Witchcrafts and Possessions, an account of their case. Here, too, the account suggests that the tormented pretended to fly. Yea, they would fly like geese and be carried with an incredible swiftness through the air, having but just their toes now and then upon the ground, and their arms waved like the wings of a bird. The Lost of Kif was published in 1682, and Mother's account of the Goodwins was printed in 
1689. So these would have been the latest and best known cases of witchcraft, presumably known not only by ministers and doctors, but also to all the young girls, especially those who lived in the parsonage. <laughs> I know I laugh, guys, but I'm laughing because um, it, what they did was dreadful. They they lied, okay? I don't believe that they were flying and, and, and doing all this. I don't believe they were possessed, I'm sorry. And doing all that, I can't believe that. I just, I just don't. I just really don't. But, I mean, you have to look at this as a household because it was one full household, right? So, if it was one full household, you've got these three girls literally zooming around the house, shouting things like, wish, wish, hush, hush. Basically pretending they could fly, vomiting up pins, having pins stuck in them, and wanting to throw themselves in the fire. Think about that. Just picture that in your mind right now. I mean, it's absurd, is it not? Anyway, that's the next part of The Afflicted. When we come back, we'll hopefully then get into the last part of The Afflicted and be able to move on to the next chapter. Thank you for listening and many blessings.